Thank you, Scott. Um, I don't think anyone has ever called me Lord Jamie before, uh, but it was an unfortunate sequence of words there. Uh, but in, in Penrith, when you come out and you're called Lord Jamie, you know it's a good start to the day, especially when you're wearing a manly jersey. Uh, for context and to deal with the elephant in the room, um, many of you might have seen Mark's Facebook post during the week, uh, which tagged me in it, and he was wearing a Penrith jersey. Well, I come from the Northern Beaches, and uh, when a Penrith jersey turns up on your feed, you, you kind of get a lot of hate coming, coming your way. So I thought, uh, as a bit of payback to Mark, uh, I would wear my manly jersey, but it's actually as a sign of humble submission uh, to the mighty men at the foot of the mountains who came back with a great win this year, and it's been a good couple of years for you guys, so well done to you. Um, not that any of you played. Did anyone play here? No, but it's the collective we that we like to use, don't we? Uh, a bit of context for you. Uh, my name's Jamie. I uh, Actually, the last time I was in this church building was... Ah, oh, 2016, 15. When did when was it built? Surely someone remembers. 2014, and then they had a Baptist uh, assembly at some point in time, which was kind of close to that. Anyway, uh, a number of years ago, my wife and myself and a number of others planted a church in DY, which is on the Northern Beaches. And actually, that was the assembly that we were welcomed into as kind of a grown-up church. We'd finally made it. So I had my little certificate here, and I was welcomed in as part of the Baptist family. Fast forward a number of years now, uh, I'm an associate director with the Baptist Church of New South Wales and the ACT and, um, and get to hang out in the world of mission and church development and uh, a key partnership with uh, Greater West for Christ and also what God is doing more broadly in Western Sydney and beyond. And so I'm really excited and I'm grateful to be able to share with you um, this morning. Uh, as I said, I live on the Northern Beaches. Uh, my wife and I have three young boys. Uh, household of boys keeps us very busy, but we've got you know heroes like Mark and Rachel that we can look up to in that space. But uh, they're all soccer keen. Uh, we've got uh, Levi, who's eight, um, which Levi from the line of priests. Yeah, we thought that that was pretty ironic and fun, and we just put that on him. I'm a minister. His grandfather, my wife's dad, is a minister. So we're like, ha-ha, sucked in. Um, and then we have August, who's our uh, five-year-old. August um, means good company. And uh, there was this beautiful picture from kind of Nazi Germany, which those things never go together. But there is this beautiful picture at a Hitler youth rally in which there's one person standing against the crowd with their hands by their side as everyone does as a salute, and his name was August. And so for us, we wanted someone who would stand up for what they believed in. And then our little Rufus, um, who's three years old, and Rufus means chosen in the Lord. Uh, it's in Romans, and, uh, and so for us, again, these names are significant because they're also part of our prayer for our boys as they grow up, that they would know God and that they would make God known. I understand that you guys have been in January going through the life of Abraham. Yep. Okay, fantastic. Uh, God had a big dream for Abraham, didn't he? A big dream that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky. That's a lot. This dream kind of incorporated land and that through his descendants, all the peoples on earth would be impacted. That's a big dream. 
This God-sized vision was located in a particular people, at a particular place, at a particular period of time. But a dream that went on to change the world, and we are a legacy of that. Here's the thing about God-sized dreams, right? God-sized dreams cause us to depend on him. And they cause us to partner with others. A dream that you can achieve on your own or as a church on its own is not a God-sized dream, is it? A God-sized dream is so big that you need him and that you need others. God-sized dreams cause us to ask a completely different set of questions. God has bigger dreams for us than what we think. In John chapter 7, uh, as at the feast, Jesus stood up and said, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. This is a famous saying of Jesus, isn't it? It's one that we often remember, perhaps because it's short, uh, it sticks in our brain, it's easy to remember. Um, But do we remember the whole saying? Jesus goes on to say, I tell you the truth, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within them. God's dream is... Not just to take thirsty people and fill them up. God's dream is to take thirsty people and to turn them into sprinklers. To turn them into fountains. This is true for churches, yes, but it's also true for individuals. It, it, It encompasses both. What do we usually dream for our churches? If we're honest... What we usually aim for is big, healthy churches, right? Or at least bigger, healthier churches. But there's a problem with that. What about that big, healthy fig tree that Jesus saw in Matthew chapter 21? We know that it was big because he could see it in the distance, right? We know that it was healthy because it was in leaf, And yet, Jesus curses it. Why? Because it produced no fruit. Doesn't it beg the question, are we building big churches that will impress everybody but Jesus? And doesn't it beg the question then, what is a a fruitful church? How do we get past talking about church growth and church health and onto church fruitfulness? Now, this is a concept and material that was developed by a friend of mine who's called Andrew Turner, who's the new crossover director. And if you're familiar with Baptist circles, um, he, he, um, Crossover is a Baptist, Australian Baptist agency that helps Baptists share Jesus. And so he's the new crossover director. And he was the one that, that, that started this thinking about church fruitfulness rather than church growth and church health. Now... I'm told that the area on which Penrith Baptist is built is famous for the Clementine Mandarin. Yes? Is that true? Yeah? Okay. What do you see? 
Sorry, there's masks on. You're going to have to speak a little bit louder. What do you see? Mandarin. Yeah, what else do you see? Orange. Yes, what else do you see? Piece of fruit. What else do you see? Do you know what I see? An orchard. Contained inside every mandarin is the capacity, not just for another mandarin tree, but an entire orchard. What is the essence of fruitfulness? What makes a fruit a fruit? Yeah? What makes a fruit a fruit? Seeds. What defines a fruit is not that it tastes fresh or that it's good for you and you can tell your kids to eat as much of it as they like. It's that it carries lots of seeds. Remember the parable of the sower? What was the great line at the end? But the seed that fell on the good soil grew and produced a great giant tree. No? No, the point is 160, 30 times what was sown. Jesus is measuring response to the gospel by multiplicity, by fruitfulness. So shouldn't we? I want to do some maths. Hands up if you're good at maths in this room. Because I'm going to lean on you. Yep, okay, great. There's always a couple in the church and they've usually served as the treasurer for a period of time. If someone puts up their hand and um, they're not good at maths and they are the treasurer, that's an issue, but that's not what we're going to deal with here. You can do that at your As God Moves meeting next time. But, okay, we're going to do some maths. You don't need to rely on me because someone else, Andrew, has done the maths on this. But imagine there are two churches in a town. Let's just call that town Penrith. Um, And the first church is called Church A. And the second one is Church B. They are both blessed with 100 people. And they both want to do well. For Church A, they think that doing well means growing big, right? And growing big means welcoming in as many people as possible and making sure that people don't leave. Keeping all your people and keeping them happy. That's why we call this a retentive mindset, right? It's about retention. Church A does some effective local witnessing and evangelism in their community, and they grow by 10 new believers each year. That's fantastic, right? And then they do this for 100 years. You got your maths going? Yep. Now, over 100 years, we know that some people will die, uh, but yet some others will be born. Some people will leave the town, and yet some people will come to the town. Uh, So let's just call all of that equal, right? Can you tell me how many disciples are in the church at their 100th anniversary? Yeah, you didn't even put up your hand. Well done, 1,100. Okay. 1,100, that's right. So there's this big celebration. 
right? You can imagine this, can't you? In, in how old's Penrith Baptist? Uh, we're vague on this. Let's just say, in a hundred years' time, you can imagine this. You have the big celebration. You tell the story of how God has done this amazing work in you as a church. You started out with just a hundred, and now look at you. You're 1,100 people. And quietly, this, this church, A, they're thanking God that they've been more blessed than the other church in the town that hasn't grown. Church B. Church B has a fruitful mindset, a whole different view as to what God wants. They want to make strong disciples that will spread the message of God's kingdom everywhere. And everywhere starts right here. So they also pay strong attention to local witness and evangelism, uh, and they also grow by 10 new believers each year. But they are slightly different. They have a principle. This principle is when they get to 120 people, they will take 20 and send them out to start a new church. And then they encourage that new church to do the exact same thing, to reach out with the gospel to grow by 10 people each year, and then when you get to 120, which will be in 10 years' time, yeah, do the same. Send out that church and embed that principle or embed that DNA within that group. So, can anyone tell me how many people are in the church at its 100th anniversary? Anyone? Yeah, it's a trick question. It's, it's 100 or between 100 and 120. But how many disciples have been made in their network of churches? Who's the good math? This is where you really need to come. How many? A thousand. How many more? One hundred and seven million. And Church A was thanking God for its eleven hundred people and that it wasn't like Church B. Now you might be thinking that this math isn't realistic. How can we rely on this? Uh, Churches don't keep growing like that for a hundred years, right? So what Andrew did in his calculation, he added in a new factor. What if each of these churches died after 25 years? What if the churches that got planted... um, With 20 people, they spent 10 years growing, then 15 years sending, and then they had a big argument and died. I know, you know, that's shocking. No church ever has a big argument and died. But this factor was added into the equation. So what's the new number? That 107 million drops all the way down to 93 million. Yeah? So if every church only lasted 25 years, but applied that principle, you still end up with 93 million disciples. You see, it's not about keeping your church with your name on it, getting bigger and better, and it's not even about keeping it alive forever. It's about making disciples who in turn make disciples. That's what the Great Commission actually says, doesn't it? Make disciples, 
baptize them and teach them to obey all of my commands, which includes this one, to make disciples, teaching them to obey, etc., etc., right? So in order to wrap our heads around this, I wonder whether we could imagine the church in new ways, perhaps some new metaphors to help our understanding of this fruitful principle, rather than a local institution to run. So here are four images that we're going to briefly jump through. The first one is the extended family. When we have a nuclear family, when our kids are young, we have this one aim, or at least I do as a parent, keep everyone together, keep them safe, Keep them playing nicely together. Keep them alive. Like that's parenting 101, isn't it? Yeah? It's just our reflex. (laughs) With my three kids, eight, five, and two, that's the stage of life that I'm living in. But what if I'm still playing that same game in 30 years? What if my kids are 38, 35, and 32, and I'm still doing their washing, telling them when to go to bed, uh, they're still living in my house, do you think I'd be a successful parent? No. It's true that we protect and govern and care for our kids when they're young, but it's normal to grow them up and to prepare them to leave home and start their own families. I wonder why this is so normal for families, but yet so strange for churches. It should be the norm, shouldn't it? When I was young, my parents had this rule, right? That you had to leave home when you were 18 years old. It wasn't because they hated us. It was because they loved us. And this goal of having to move out when you're 18 years old reshaped the way that they parented, and it reshaped the way that we learned as kids. So all of a sudden, they invited us into the process of budgeting. All of a sudden, they invited us in to family chores. And for us as kids, you know, I'm sure there was moments where we hated on it, but it made sense because they were preparing us to move out. They were preparing us to be adults. So when I turned 18, I moved to the UK. And all of a sudden, knowing to remember to buy toilet paper was a really good life lesson. My sister moved to America and she worked in the Christian camp scene over there. My other brother moved to Canada and my youngest brother, the baby of the family, moved down the road to another house in Narrabeen so he could still drop the washing back at mum and dad's. The babies, they're a little bit softer on the babies. Here's the interesting thing about families. Imagine a family with many children. When the oldest one leaves home, What happens to the second eldest? They step up. They step up into the role of the eldest. They assume those responsibilities. And all the kids step up in turn, don't they? In a church with a fruitful mindset, everyone keeps on learning. Everyone keeps on growing. Everyone keeps on needing to step up. Instead of just admiring the church's best musician, Scott or whoever it is, We know that they might soon be sent out. So we're asking them, Scott, please teach me how to play the piano like you do. Teach me how to sing and to lead people in worship like you do. Can you show me how to play? Second metaphor is that of a university. Universities understand that their students are only passing through. They will graduate, right? If there was a university where no one ever graduated out, it could only mean one thing. 
Everyone's failing, especially the teachers. Do you know that there's a global ranking for universities? For a while, it was my dad's role to oversee this process for the, the University of Sydney. And he used to get so fr frustrated on these rankings um, because they based their rankings on things that he didn't think were the right things, right? This is what they based their rankings on. How many students they had, how much money they have in donations for research, how famous their teaching staff are, how many times they're published in journals, that type of thing, and how nice their facilities were. And while all of these things are good and important, my dad's point is that these aren't the things that we should be measuring. He thinks that we should be keeping track of graduates and see the, the significant impact and difference that they're making in the world. Wow. Imagine if churches learn to think like that. Instead of focusing on how many people we have, how nice the building is, how much money we have, and how famous our pastor is. Third metaphor. This is one of the world's ugliest buildings. Look how terrible it is. It's at Cape Canaveral in Florida. Just one, down, one hour down the road, is Orlando. And what's Orlando famous for? Disney World, yeah! Disney World, on the other hand, is one of the prettiest places on earth. All the buildings are kept looking great. Even the gardens are perfectly manicured. That's because Disney World is a destination. You go to Disney World to go to Disney World. Yeah, then you can say, I've been to Disney World. But you don't go to Cape Canaveral to go to Cape Canaveral. You go to Cape Canaveral to go to the moon. What if we set up our churches like that? Instead of welcoming people in and saying, welcome to heaven, settle down, you're going to be here for a while. What if we said, welcome to our church, we can't wait to see the back of you. We believe that you belong to God not us. He has entrusted you to us for a while. We'll build you up. We'll help you to discern the call that he has on your life. We'll help you get ready and trained. And then we'll launch you into what's next. The last one is a boot camp. Imagine there's a boot camp, right? All the soldiers live together, eat together, train together, and it builds this strong sense of community, yeah? Every day there's exercises, there's lectures, there's training, there's long runs. Um, you, you kind of immerse in this experience, and everyone is really, really excited. But just imagine if a rumour went around the camp, just a quiet whisper, psst, there's not actually a war. What do you think would happen at the boot camp if people began to believe that there wasn't actually a war, that they weren't actually going to be sent anywhere? How do you think they'd go about their exercises? You know, they're going for a run and you might just dip behind a tree while the rest of the group goes off and as they come back through, you hop on the end like you've been running all the time. Maybe that's just me. But it wouldn't be as important to turn up to every lecture because, you know, you'll just catch it the next time around. These guys learn that it actually doesn't make a difference at all. And churches can be like that, can't we? 
We can go through the motions, building this sense of community and doing some teaching and some training. But unless people believe that they're going to be sent out, why bother training very hard at all? You know, maybe we'll get the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians next time it goes around. We'll listen harder then. You know, it comes around every five years in churches, the book of Romans. But what if the pastor said next time, okay, you're going to teach Romans. I'm not going to teach Romans ever again. You're teaching it next time. How do you think that would change the posture of those hearing it being taught. Do you think people would pay more attention? Do you think that they would listen intently? Do you think they would ask questions when they don't quite understand? Real learning would take place. In a church with a fruitful mindset, training gets real. Every week counts. Every Bible study, every learning opportunity matters. I hope those four pictures were helpful, um, but I'll throw in a bonus one because I really like you guys. Um, What happens when someone is pouring water in a glass and it gets right to the very top? What do we say? Whoa, stop. Churches that don't have a fruitful mindset think of themselves like a glass. They think, what do we need, right? The preachers, elders, musicians, kids ministry leaders, etc., etc. And they ask God for them, which is really, really good. God, send us some more musicians. Send us some more kids ministry people. But when they have enough preachers or musicians, they never have enough children's ministry leaders, let's be honest. But when they have enough, they stop praying for them, don't they? We've already got two preachers. That's enough. But we have other needs and we'll move on to them. But a church with a fruitful mindset doesn't just ask, what do we need? It asks, what does Penrith need? What does Australia need? What does the world need? How many preachers, teachers, worship leaders, kids ministry leaders, disciple makers, elders does the world need? Does the city of Penrith need? Fruitful churches think of themselves more like a jug than a cup. A jug is made to be emptied. It's designed that way. And it doesn't worry when it gets towards the end and becoming empty because it knows that there is one who will always fill it up. Do you notice that when a cup overflows, it's messy? It seems like a mistake, but the jug is shaped for careful pouring in just the right place. It's designed that way. And fruitful churches get good at discerning when and where are the right places to send people according to God's will. So let's think of ourselves a bit more like an extended family or a launch pad, a university, a boot camp, and even a jug. Let's be those who through trusting Christ come to have streams of living water flow from within them. Let us open up our eyes to the bigger thing that God is doing, the big dream that he has for Penrith Baptists, for his church in particular, for this city here of Penrith, but also for the world. Can I pray for us?
Okay, let's pray. Scott, did you want to come up too? I just want to give a moment of silence and contemplation so that you can hear God's voice, not mine, which is so much more important. What's one thing that stood out to you this morning? Ask the Holy Spirit to impress that on your heart. What's one thing that stood out to you this morning? Is it the simple realization that we come to Jesus as thirsty to be filled up, but also for streams of living water to flow from within us? Are you thirsty this morning? God, I pray that you would fill those who are thirsty. Those who are feeling depleted and dry, Lord, fill them up fill them up to overflowing. That streams of living water will flow from within them and transform this city. This city that is dry. This city that needs King Jesus. Is it one of those metaphors whether it's part of that or all of it, that actually triggers new ways of thinking about the church, new dreams, new possibilities of how God can use you, the collective you. Father, I pray that you would unlock dreams, dreams for individuals and dreams for this church, dreams that are so big that they are They require these guys to depend on you, to partner with others. Dreams like the dream that you gave Abraham, that through his descendants, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. God, our world is turned upside down at the moment. Our cities are turned upside down. Our lives are turned upside down. But we know that you are there in the midst of the chaos. We know that you bring order out of the chaos. I pray that we as your church would be attentive to the new thing that you are doing. That you would give us soft hearts that you would give us open minds and hands that are ready to be about the things that you are about, King Jesus. We surrender ourselves to you again this morning.
I want to provide an opportunity for those who feel like responding, here I am, send me. It doesn't mean that you need to pack up and leave, but it's a posture of being responsive to God's new thing. If that is you, I want to provide this space for you to just stand. And I know that is a big step. It might be something that you're not familiar with. But it's a physical response to what God is doing in your heart. If that's you, it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter what your story is, but the Spirit is saying, the Spirit is impressing on your heart. I invite you to stand. I pray for those who have stand. I pray that you would unlock within them big dreams. I pray that you would surround them with a community that stands alongside them and supports them and prays for them and sends them into their families, into their workplaces, into their neighbourhoods, into all that you have. God, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will be done, that justice would roll, that peace would be experienced, that wholeness would be known, that lives would be transformed. And we pray for these people and the work that you are doing in their hearts tonight, this morning. Amen.